All right. Hey, Anna. How are you? How's your quarantine going? My quarantine's pretty good. I found a groove in working from home, and I've been trying a lot of just like new recipes. Uh, one of them yeah, is me one. Too. Yeah. Uh, one of them is one you introduced to me, Anna. It's the uh, the instant oh my coffee God. foam. Yes. <laughs> it's so cool. Hannah, do you want to say what it is? Yeah. So actually, this is quite the trend right now. If you look up YouTube videos of instant coffee foam, you'll see a ton of people making it at home. But I just want to say that Anna was ahead of the trend because she sent me this recipe a while ago. And basically, (laughs) no problem. I got to give you the credit. (laughs) Um, Much appreciated. (laughs) um, But it's like this magical chemical process that happens between instant coffee, sugar and water. Yeah, it's equal parts, so it's one in one in one coffee, instant coffee, sugar, and water. And you just uh, whisk it for five minutes if you have an instant, uh, what is it Electric called? mixer. Electric mixer. Thank you, Anna. Um, use the electric mixer, and in five minutes, you have this beautiful coffee foam. I have, it's, inc- it's insane. Like, I saw somebody do it on YouTube, and I was like, there's no way, because there's no dairy in it. And you just beat it, and it turns into this, like, magic... It has the most amazing texture. It's this, like, creamy, thick, foamy, instant coffee thing. And I have no idea why it works, but it's so delicious. It's so good. And you put it on this, like... Right now I have it on top of this really cold glass of milk with a little space-themed straw. Anna gave me some cool (laughs) space-themed straws, and I'm sure a lot of you will appreciate that. (laughs) For a birthday one year. I went to Target... I went to the children's Target birthday section, uh, and it was like a, they had for, because space is cool now, which I completely agree with, but they had a bunch of stuff for a space-themed birthday party, and I was like, I've hit the jackpot, so I like bought out the entire space-themed children's birthday party section, but for henna. (laughs) It made me so happy, and my straw has a little moon on it right now, it's perfect. (laughs) So cute, so cute. But yeah, that's been my, that's my afternoon, and I am really loving it. How about you, Anna? How's the quarantine been treating you? It's been going. It's been going. I've been eating a lot of snacks. Oh, I'm yeah. Snacks are wonderful. What are your th- What are your top three work-from-home snacks? All right. One of them is definitely those truffle potato chips from Trader Joe's I talked about last time. I oh have multiple gosh. bags of those right now. So, so amazing. And then I also love the Trader Joe's has these dried mango slices. Um, they, they like sweeten them. There's sugar in them, too. They're not just dried mango, but they're really good. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, my, and then definitely uh, peanut butter cups. <laughs> the dark chocolate <laughs> ones? No, just regular ones. Heck I'm not, yeah. I'm, 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 <laughs> just, no. I was just, just, just regular peanut butter. You have too much faith in me. And then, not even from Trader Joe's, just like the Reese's peanut butter cup brand of peanut butter cups. <laughs> and then, um, I've been trying to eat a lot of apples, trying to get you a lot of apples and pears as snacks. Heck not that yeah. I've not been eating other crappy snacks, but I'm also trying to sneak in a good, a good healthy snack. It cancels out the peanut butter cups, I think. That's exactly. That's how, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What are your favorite snacks? Oh, man. Yeah. With the work from home um, environment, I've definitely, my snacking has increased by like magnitudes. Um, uh, yeah. Also what are your those, favorite snacks? Those truffle chips, like you just mentioned. God. So good. Um, I've also been snacking on a lot of, I'll just take a bowl of milk and cereal, like (laughs) oat milk and a lot of just like honey nut Cheerios. And I know that you'd be like, Hannah, that's a breakfast. No, it's a snack for me. I'll just snack on a bowl of cereal. 
I haven't eaten cereal consistently in years. And so about this quarantine, I eat cereal all the time. Yes, exactly. I'm in the like, same boat. I was in the grocery store. I was like, what do I need? And I was like, I really want cereal. I think it's just like being at home all the time. Yeah. But I have also eaten my fair share of cereal. Yes. When this quarantine's over, Anna, you can come over and we can share. Oh my God. And we can have lattes. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> I miss this. <laughs> but too. I did. So somebody told me, I used to love Project Runway, and then I just got tired of it. That's a reality show. Heidi Klum was the host, and Tim Gunn was in it. He was like the mentor or something. So I watched way too many seasons of that. That's been on since I was in like middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then somebody, I think NPR was like, they switched over. The host is Carly Kloss. Um, she's a model, or she was a model. Either way, she's famous. And um, Christian Siriano is the mentor. He's a designer. He actually was on Project One Way, but I don't think he won. And somebody on NPR was like, it's actually really good. They just changed it up a little bit. And uh-huh. So I logged on. So I, I used my parents' cable login so I could watch it through bravo.com. And I was like, oh my god, this, the episodes of this season 17 expire in five days. So I have to get through this entire season <laughs> in five days. Were you successful? Of course I was. I had a day to spare because what else was I going to do? That's amazing. Is Tyra Banks still on that show? That's America's Next Time Battle. Really? Oh, I'm getting them confused. They're all kind of the same. I don't... <laughs> it's not your <laughs> <Frick>. fault. <laughs> Project Runway, America's Next Top Model... Um, there's a couple more that are just like, have been running for years and years and years and like all blend together. I've definitely watched my fair share of America's Next Top Model too. Oh man. I can't blame you, Anna. I was addicted to Love is Blind. Like, God, I watched that whole thing. (laughs) I told somebody to watch it and they texted me and they were like, are you the one who recommended this to me? I was like, I sure was. And she was like, it's awful, but I'm, (laughs) I'm on episode five. And I was like, yeah. You are. It's so good and so bad at the same time, but you can't take your eyes off of it. It's you like you're know. watching this this like train wreck happen in front of your eyes. You're like, and then, <laughs> but at the same time, you're kind of rooting for them. Exactly. This one woman, this one woman gets engaged. She's like, I've known him for four days. I've had me- meals in my fridge for more than four days. And you're like, <laughs> you totally have, but I want this to work out for you. <laughs> like, I think you're crazy, but I want you to be happy. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so the whole premise of this Love is Blind show is that there are these people that get paired up, um, but they can't see each other. They're, uh, they're like put into these pods and they have to talk to each other through these pods. So there's one person per pod. And they talk for a few days. And after like three days of conversations, people are declaring love for each other. It's it's just nuts. It's so fast. It's so yeah. fast. But yet, I'm, I, 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 want them, I want them to be happy. I'm rooting <laughs> for them. I'm like, this is insane. And yet, I'm fully invested in this now. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yep, I watched that too. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so should we... Uh, start talking about some space stuff. <laughs> start talking about space and not just the TV we've been watching. Maybe I feel like this could go on forever. <laughs> it could. It could. But first, we should introduce ourselves. Yeah. So I'm Henna, and I'm Anna, and this is. But, but it, is it is rocket science. science. Woo. <laughs> So I just 
saw an article that was released yesterday on spacenews.com, which is actually a really cool website if none of you have seen it. So essentially NASA has picked the crew for the first operational SpaceX commercial crew mission to the ISS. So it's the Dragon. It will be the Dragon mission. And it was it will actually, interestingly enough, won't include any Russian cosmonauts. This is a really big deal for the space industry because as of right now, on when we're recording this, no private space company has flown astronauts. So Virgin Galactic has flown astronauts, but first of all, they were pilots, so they were trained pilots. And second of all, they did not go past the Kármán line, which means they technically have not gone to space. The yeah. Kármán line is this magical line. There is actually reasons about it. We can do an episode where we talk about it, which Heck divides yeah. what is considered to be Earth's atmosphere from space. Virgin Galactic didn't cross the Kármán line, so technically those astronauts did not go to space. SpaceX, not a NASA rocket, but a private space company, will be flying astronauts to the ISS. Right now they do a lot of resupply missions to the ISS. And so there are no Russian cosmonauts because the... So they're called Roscosmos officials, which kind of made me laugh. So apparently <laughs> Russian cosmonaut officials are Roscosmos officials. <laughs> so they, they, call, they say the Dragon, the crew Dragon, will be an unproven vehicle. So they're not going to put their astronauts on it. Oh, that's so interesting that that was it the is, reasoning. Yeah, it is really interesting. So this whole, we can link the article if you're interested in more. The article goes into more with really talking to the, it really just goes into more about Russia's feelings about the Dragon and the SpaceX rocket. But essentially, the crew has been assigned veteran astronaut Shannon Walker, who is a woman, is a gender neutral name. She's actually a physicist. So she's going to be on the Crew-1 mission of SpaceX Dragon, along with the Japanese astronaut, oh no, Sochi Noguchi? That sounds right to me. Uh, thank you. Okay. That seems reasonable. <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> offensive, I don't think. So they're going to join Na- NASA astronauts Mike Hopkins and Vic Glover. So they were assigned to the mission in 2018. So I think it's just going to be the four people. It's going to be Shannon Walker, Sochi Noguchi, Mike Hopkins, and Vic Glover are going to be what at this will probably be... This first crew on a private space vehicle that will be orbital. Which is really awesome. That is really awesome. So right now, Blue Origin has plans to fly people, but they're going to fly them in the short term on New Shepard. That's the only operational vehicle they have right now. And New Shepard does not go... It's suborbital, so it doesn't do orbits around the Earth. So they may fly people before this mission, but this will be the first mission that flies people orbital. Right. And... Like Anna said, this is really phenomenal because um, SpaceX is a is part of the private space industry, and all yeah. orbital flights that have taken people to space have been government agencies. On that note, are you ready to hop into today's episode? Heck yeah, let's do it. So today we'll be talking about space hibernation. Which I actually think is kind of like a really perfect topic for our current situation, because I don't know about you, but I definitely feel like I'm hibernating a little bit. <laughs> that's hilarious. Actually, Anna, that's so perfect. Yes, it does it feel like I'm hibernating. Me, it didn't occur to me until right now. It's like, we're talking about hibernation. I'm literally like on my couch wrapped in a blanket eating snacks. <laughs> and especially for me, Anna, I'm you know I'm in a basement apartment. I feel my like God. I'm burrowed underground. Hannah, <laughs> I don't know how she does it. She has no dishwasher, which is like, to me, the worst thing in the world Every time I go there, I'm like, how do you live like this? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Here's a paper plate of snacks, Anna. Deal with it. <laughs> I obviously don't care. I'm more of just like, I'm like, how are you living? 
Oh man, one day, one day. I can't wait for my future dishwasher. I really yeah. can't. I feel for you. I feel for you. You. She has a really cute apartment though. She designed it really well. But yeah, oh, it's a thanks. basement apartment. So you're definitely in your little cave. Yeah, I definitely feel it. But yeah, so space hibernation is super cool. We've seen it in sci-fi countless times. And Anna and I thought it would be a really awesome topic to share with you guys this week. Yeah, actually, Hannah picked this one, and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And it wasn't until I really started researching it that I got super into it. So, solid pick, Hannah. Thanks. I'm really excited to talk about it with you. All right. Will you explain the technological description for us? Yes, I would love to. What is space hibernation? So, when we think about space hibernation, the first thought that comes to our mind is, is that when astronauts are sleeping for long periods of time, like in that movie, Passengers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's close, but sleeping isn't hibernation. So let's go ahead and take a time machine back to elementary school when we learned about what hibernation was. And don't feel so bad if you don't remember the particulars, because let's be real, I was mostly just counting my Sanrio pencils and coloring <laughs> and not paying too much attention when I was that young. <laughs> uh, were you ever into that Sanrio pencil trend, Anna? I like, have no idea what those are. I literally I got silent for a second because I was Googling them. Oh my gosh. So um, Sanrio pencils are like the Hello Kitty pencils. They were the mechanical pencils with a little chain. Oh my God. Are those the ones where you would like take out the tip and put it in the bottom? Take out what? Like you would take out one lead tip and then you would stick it in the bottom of the pencil. Yes, you could do that. And then some of these pencils were so decorative that they would have little chains and trinkets at the end of their caps. Oh my God. No, I have never seen these. These oh look my cool. Gosh. I would have been super into this. <laughs> that was my childhood. I'm on Etsy. I could buy them for $8. Oh God. <laughs> I don't need these. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm getting off of this website. Those look so cool. I used They're to fun. have, I used to have these, they were like regular number two pencils, except they were all glitter. Ooh, beautiful. Yeah, I thought I was the coolest kid. Yeah, elementary school henna would have been also all about that. Oh, yeah. But yeah, let's get back to space hibernation. So when we think hibernation, we think about animals going into this dormant state during the winter. Over 200 species hibernate, and they go into hibernation primarily during the winter months to survive because resources are scarce. When they hibernate, their heartbeats oh, drop. You know, I don't think I ever actually made the connection or I wasn't paying attention that they go into hibernation because resources are scarce. That makes sense. It makes sense because it's like, it's winter. Not as many animals are out and about. Um, no. A, there, a lot of stuff is dying around them. I've just never, I've never thought about that. Wow. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So when they hibernate, this is when things get really interesting. When they hibernate, their heartbeats drop and their consumption of consumables drop. And I did not remember any of these facts from elementary school until I actually had to read up on space hibernation um, a few years ago when I was in grad school. So I'm just going to throw an example out here. When groundhogs hibernate, their heartbeat rate drops from about 80 to 100 beats a minute to four to six beats a minute. Whoa. It's nuts. Let That's that so sink slow. in. Yeah, so slow. Their body temperature drops from 98 degrees Fahrenheit to 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my god. It's ridiculous. And then their breathing also drops to one breath every six minutes. That's insane. It's insane. 
So let's get a little bit more technical. There are two types of hibernators. There's the obligate hibernators. These are the mammals that seasonally will decrease their metabolism and body temperature, regardless of what the environment is that is around them. And then there's the facultative hibernators, and they enter hibernation only when experienced like a negative energy balance. Okay, so like an obligate hibernator would be like a bear that hibernates every winter. Yes, regardless exactly. of technically what's going on. So it would always hibernate in these months, even if the weather wasn't necessarily winter. Exactly. You got it. Okay. But, whoa, facultative hibernators only hibernate when they have to. When they have like to. Like if there's exactly. something going on, like they're like, for whatever reason, you've had significantly less food intake. So it probably means that there's less resources. So you're going to hibernate through this. You got it. Exactly. Got it. Got it. Got it. So they only hibernate when necessary. Yes, exactly. Cool. I didn't know that either. Yeah, me neither. (laughs) Until I read up on it. (laughs) So hibernation does not have to mean a decrease in body temperature, like I just talked about, but it does always mean a reduced metabolism, almost as high as a 98% drop in metabolic activity, which is crazy. And Wait, I'm so sorry. A 98% drop in metabolic activity? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, almost as high as a 98% drop. So I think some species, um, scientists have observed in some species a 98% drop, and then, of course, less than 98%. Gotcha. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah, it's crazy. So to be more specific, hibernation is not a constant state of reduced metabolic rate and low body temperature, it's cyclical. So parts of the cycle when when an animal is in hibernation is that the animal has this reduced metabolic rate called torpor, but then parts of the cycle, its metabolic rate spikes up to normal. Gotcha. Okay. So sometimes it has a really low metabolic rate and then it goes back up and then it comes back down and it goes back up. Exactly. But the whole time they're asleep. Exactly. This entire time they're in this unconscious state of, yeah, of the cycle. Yeah, they're technically not sleeping, they're unconscious. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So now let's go ahead and take a step back. Why would this be beneficial in space? So when you have a long duration mission, for example, if we send astronauts on a three-year mission to Mars and beyond, that would require a lot of consumables, such as food, oxygen, and then you also have to deal with a lot more waste being generated by the astronauts. But if your crew is hibernating, you can save a lot on that mass. Yeah, and if you could save the actual mass, you can save on propellant. Exactly. So that way you have, you like Anna said, you have less propellant, which means less cost um, for the rocket. And then also, if you think about it from a psychological standpoint, it's less time that the astronauts are spending awake wandering around this tiny capsule being bored in this isolated confined environment we can all kind of relate to that right now but like even on a lesser <laughs> level because i can still leave to go to the store <laughs> yeah i try exactly. to minimize leaving to go to the store but i still can if i need something actually that's such a great point so everyone out there who's listening to us and who's in quarantine just think about it. Like, think about not even being able to leave your apartment at all. Not even to go to the store or to go on a walk around your block. Like, no, imagine and not yeah. even not being able to communicate with anybody or being able to communicate, but like messages could be ten minutes in between when you send and when you get a response. Exactly. And then, 
Imagine doing that for like 10 years. Oh, God. Um, so let's keep going. So from work in hospitals, we know that patients have successfully been placed in a continuous torpor state using this protocol called therapeutic hyperthermia. And they've successfully been put into these state, the state for 14 days. So therapeutic hypothermia is this process of dropping a patient's body temperature by 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. There's four aspects to, the hypo, to hypothermic induction. First is the initial body cooling, then is sedation, then is nutrition and hydration, and then the last step is rewarming the body. To drop the body temperature of a patient, cooling blankets, ice packs, and cooling pads are used to bring that body temperature down. And the goal is to cool the body as quickly as possible. Another option for cooling the body temperature is internal cooling, and that's when chilled fluids are given through an IV, an intravenous line, into your bloodstream. So therapeutic hypothermia has been used to treat patients with brain injuries and patients after cardiac arrest, and also a number of other types of cases. The general idea of therapeutic hypothermia is to reduce the demands of the body as it is recovering. And in my research, so I was reading up on therapeutic hypothermia, and from reading online, I found that humans have actually undergone multiple therapeutic hypothermia induction cycles with no negative or detrimental effects reported in either near-term recovery period or long-term. Wow. Yeah. It's actually very fascinating. And yeah. then... Another really interesting fact I found was that testing in animals has shown that cancerous tumor growth and the effects of radiation, which is a big concern in space. Yeah. Yeah. I think we talked about a bit about that in our space medicine episode. We did. So if any of you are curious about how radiation really impacts the body, we would recommend you check that episode out. Yeah. But yeah, so... Testing in animals has shown that cancerous tumor growth and the effects of radiation are actually reduced and slowed during the torpor state, which is pretty cool. That is really cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, all this information, I just found it so fascinating as I was reading it. So would it just be that like, so like, do they think or they hypothesize that it's because you've reduced this metabolic rate, so you're essentially giving less energy to that tumor? That makes sense to me. I don't know exactly what the technical uh, reasoning is, but the way you just described it, that's what I would assume too. Okay. As my <laughs> zero <laughs> medical education. <laughs> um, so in grad school, I was lucky enough to be a part of this research team where we published this paper called The Advanced Concept for a Crewed Mission to the Martian Moons. And it was part of this grad school challenge. Um, and the paper is in Acta Astronautica. And in it, we actually wrote about inducing torpor for astronauts. So in that paper, we actually calculated that on average, a crew of four astronauts can save about, with a crew of four astronauts, we can save about 55 kilograms or 121 pounds of consumables per day using torpor. So this would be for all four people? Yeah, all four That's people. That's a lot. That's a lot of mass per day. Think about a three-year mission. That's a lot of yeah. pounds 
a lot of kilograms. (laughs) Yeah. So let's set the picture. You're in this capsule with a crew of four astronauts. You're part of a crew of four astronauts and you're headed to Mars. Two of the astronauts would be awake for four days and then they would undergo induced hypothermia for 11 to 14 days. And then two other astronauts would wake up while you were in induced hypothermia to like take care of the capsule, communicate back to the ground crew, um, basically make repairs, do regular maintenance around the capsule. And then you would be knocked out for another 11 to 14 days. Gotcha. Yeah. So then this would just keep going on and on. A lot of mass would be saved and, you know, a lot of time would be killed because, you know, there's only so many activities you can do in an isolated, confined environment, as we're all learning now. I can attest to that. <laughs> I've been I've been doing so much cross-stitching. It's, like, stupid. Because it's impressive, Anna. Your cross-stitching is beautiful. It's concerning because I have nothing else to do besides work on this podcast, do my job, tidy my apartment, and cross-stitch. Oh, and I, I go mean, for runs. That's I go good. for runs. That's good. Um, every week when we video chat for this podcast, uh, for this podcast, I swear, the last three weeks, Anna has pulled out a new cross-stitch project that she's shown me, and I've been so impressed, because I'm still on number one, and she's on, like, number five now. <laughs> You're so nice. Also, I had been, I had previously done this for years. Like, I, I did this a lot in high school, and then I kind of stopped when I got into college. So I had done this before. Head is brand new. <laughs> You're so nice to me. <laughs> it's true. It also just means maybe you found other stuff to do, which is probably healthy. <laughs> All right, so let's get back to it. Oh, I do yoga with my mom. I do that too. Oh, yeah, that's good. (laughs) That makes me sound less sad. (laughs) No, Anna, you are not sad. (laughs) Thank you. You have a lot of interests. (laughs) I do, I do. Yes, I do. Um, So in an effort to design this mission that I just mentioned with my uh, grad school team, we had referenced a paper titled Torpor-Inducing Transfer Habitat for Human Stasis to Mars by Bradford et al. This paper is phenomenal. I would highly recommend, if you're even the least bit curious about space hibernation, to look up this paper. And again, this paper is titled Torpor-Inducing Transfer Habitat for Human Stasis to Mars. It's published, yeah, it's really cool. It's published in the NASA archives, and it's a paper in which NASA is actually considering a habitat design that supports hibernation for crewed missions to Mars. And it's done by people who work for SpaceWorks. So Bradford et al. Are, work for SpaceWorks. And the paper has some, the coolest part about the paper, I think, is the pictures. There are some pretty awesome animated representations of unconscious astronauts strapped in their torpor chambers. Oh, cool. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it's really fun to look at. So the paper dives into a lot of detail about hibernation and also talks a lot about the design of this chamber. I'll go into it just a bit. So it talks about how you would need a thermal management system that is constantly cooling your torpor chamber and how you would need to power that. It also discusses how the capsule will need to deliver an IV with nutrients um, in this liquid form to the astronauts. Yeah, that's something important to mention. 
So, like, yeah. before bears go into hibernation, they eat a whole bunch more food. So that when they go into hibernation, they have they have all those stores energies. Exactly. We as people can't do that. We don't work like that. Right. So we would need a form of nutrients. Especially if you're talking about putting hybrid people in hibernation for periods of years. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Thanks, Anna. So, yeah. You definitely need an IV to deliver these nutrients. Because, like Anna said... You're putting these people in this in this state for days on end and in this cycle for years. So you want to be able to like make sure they're getting the nutrients they need and their body just isn't weakening under this uh, under this induced hypothermia. So the IV solution is called uh, total parenteral nutrition or TPN, and it's used in hospitals post surgery and for oncological treatments. And so is that what, like, if somebody's in, like, in a coma, or is exactly. that what they give them? Exactly. Yep. Cool. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I'm learning so much today. Yeah. It's a lot. It's real. This episode's really cool because it's a, it's just this cross between aerospace engineering and medicine. And it's been oh, yeah. really fun to, like, learn about the medical side of, of, like, a space capsule. Yeah. It's really neat. I talk about that, too, because it's, like, there's no way to separate this is this would be this is this would involve medical research and it's a medical concept. It's right. a medical concept that would be applied to space. Right. And it just goes to show that when you're building a capsule, you need doctors. Like it's just not aerospace engineers or mechanical engineers. You need all sorts of people, like all sorts of occupations make a space program a success. So going back to TPN, total parenteral nutrition, it's this solution that has that has amino acids lipids electrolytes etc that's delivered to the patient like we just talked about yeah so in the paper the following question was asked so this question was asked of medical professionals what are your concerns about the long-term use greater than 10 to 14 days of therapeutic hypothermia and total parenteral nutrition the answer was electrolyte abnormalities caused by both tpn there, uh, that was the IV solution, and mm-hmm. TH, therapeutic hypothermia, were the consensus primary concern. However, all subspecialists agreed that this could easily be controlled by daily adjustments to TPN and maintenance fluids. Neat. That is really neat because it basically indicates that, there, that you know, therapeutic hypothermia could be a possibility for more than 10 to 14 days at a time. Yeah. I mean, I think after a certain point, you get into muscle decay, which is probably why I would imagine for the foreseeable future, it would have to be cyclical. Like, I don't I don't think at least anytime soon we're going to have a solution to muscle decay. Yeah. So muscle atrophy is a huge issue in space. And we talk about this in our space medicine episode. And some of the treatments I saw was that, okay, so after this 11 to 14 day period, astronauts can then exercise. They can take certain drugs um, to rebuild their muscle. Um, but yeah, I think for a, if you did much longer than that, it would be really hard to rebuild that lost muscle under induced hypothermia. Yeah. So we talk about, we're going to do a section at the end where we talk about like kind of representation in movies, but a lot of times in movies you'll be like, you'll see people are put into this hy- this hibernation state and sometimes it's years. Like all I can yeah. think of is Austin Powers, which is completely not based <laughs> in anything. Like... He, like, the whole premise is he's a secret agent, and they freeze him in the 70s, and then he wakes up and whenever that movie was made, maybe the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. But, um, 
uh, and he's completely fine. He's completely normal. Like your muscles would be nothing. Right. So I can't, I would imagine that they would have to do the cyclical thing where you wake up every 10 to 14 days and move your muscles and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there's also a lot of interesting research. We could talk about this in a future episode. There's also a lot of interesting research surrounding, you know, how do you build up the human body in space after it atrophies so much in in something like sleep hibernation and just being in space. Um, but yeah. Cool. Anyways, I would super recommend checking out this paper. It's a really great, it has a really great technical justification for space hibernation, aka torpor, and long duration missions. It dives deep into the technical detail, and then it also creates this beautiful picture of traveling through deep space in a cool chamber that supports hibernation. Awesome. But yeah, that's all I have for what is hiberna- space hibernation, Anna. That was really interesting. Um, thanks. Thank you. I did too as I was researching this for the episode. Um, but yeah, do you want to talk about, do you want to take a break and then we can get into some history of space hibernation? Yeah, let's take a quick break. Awesome. We're back from our break. You ready to hear about the history of hibernation? I'm so ready. I'm so excited. And people? Anna. <laughs> yes. <Animal. laughs> I got my. I made a gin and tonic during our break. I'm ready Yum. for this. I know. I'm excited. When, Perfect. When we can see each other again, I'll make you one, and we can hang out. That sounds great, Anna. <laughs> this one podcast I really like. Kind of really likes it too. It's called "This Podcast Will Kill You." Oh. They talk about. This is two women who talk about infectious disease, and they're so cool. Uh, they always have a recipe for a quarantini, which is now it just makes me laugh because every cocktail is a quarantini. <laughs> such a good point. They have a, I, that's actually such a good point. But yeah, they always have a recipe for a quarantini and they also always have a recipe for a placebo Rita for those yes, of you non-alcoholic fans. Those of you who do drink, not do not drink, which is a healthy choice as well. Yes. <laughs> All but right. yeah, let's get started. So I had... I got, I had way too much fun with this, so please forgive me. There are definitely a couple of sides that are not necessarily space-related, but they were things that while I was researching, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I want to dig into it further. And I was like, well, it's interesting enough that I want to dig into it further. If you're all listening to this, you'll probably think it's interesting too. Or at least I hope. So when I started researching this, I was initially just figuring I would find like some articles that were kind of like, this is the first place where hibernation in humans was ever mentioned in a book or anything like that. And I got, this got way more in depth than I ever expected. <sighs> so I found, yeah, I found this really cool article on vice.com called A Brief History of Cryosleep. And it's by this guy named Jason Kobler. And it was published in January of 2016. So essentially this whole article starts, the whole idea of hy- using hypothermia for medical purposes goes way back. So in this paper written by He's a Polderman titled Induced Hypothermia to Treat Post-Ischemic and Post-Traumatic Injury. So actually, interestingly enough, ischemia is a restriction of blood supply to tissues. So essentially, uh, something like a heart attack or a stroke. So a heart attack would be that your blood supply to your heart gets blocked. Or a stroke mm-hmm. would be like you have a blood clot and the blood supply to your brain gets blocked. These would fall under the umbrella of post-ischemic. So it just means after heart attack or stroke. Amongst many other things. But those are the two most popular instances I know. So back to topic, 
Keyes claims that the concept of using cold temperatures to treat a variety of different ailments dates all the way back to the ancient Egyptians. Wow. So they described this. I know. I didn't know that. Also, I had to look up what years the ancient Egyptians were alive because I couldn't, for, not for the life of me, because I figure out on the timeline when that happens. But I was never great at history. Uh, <laughs> ask my mom. She'll tell oh you. Oh, my gosh. So using Keyes claims that the concept of using cold temperatures to treat a variety of ailments like I said, dates back to the ancient Egyptians who described this in something called the Ebers Papyrus. I had no idea what this was either. So this is actually really neat. This is a comp excuse me. This is a compilation of Egyptian medical texts, which is dated to about 1550 BC. So that's when the ancient Egyptians were alive. <laughs> that's this is one incredible. Of the known medical works. Yeah. This is one of the oldest known medical works, and it contains 700. I have this in quotations in my notes. Magical formulas and remedies to cure a myriad of afflictions. Wow. All the way from crocodile bites to toenail pain. It also apparently contains a surprisingly accurate description of the circulatory system. Which is really cool. Because that's 1550 BC. Wow. That's insane. That they understood the circulatory system? Yeah, that's amazing. And the fact yeah. that in 1550 BC, they had basically a medical encyclopedia, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, basically. A lot of them are what kind of what we would consider to be like folk cures. You know right, what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, the fact that they were like yeah. documenting it on papyrus. Yes, exactly. Like they had no concept of medicine. Ger they didn't know what germs were. Right. But that's really amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Right, so sorry, hopping back on track. You, if you think about it, you probably use a form of cold to treat injuries yourself. So what do you do if you get a sprained ankle, henna? You ice it. Exactly. So I love to run. Almost every runner knows, or any athlete knows, something called RICE. So R-I-C-E, if you get injured, rest, ice, compression, and elevation. With ice being what we're focusing on here. So the idea is that the concept of cold is being, being used to reduce swelling. This is not a new concept. <laughs> That's incredible, Anna. Like, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, I never, it never connected in my brain that icing something is like therapeutic hypothermia. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. I had never thought about it either until I was doing this research. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, that's amazing. The Egyptians talked about this. And I was like, we do this all the time. It's just, it's set in our brain. Oh like, my gosh, you're so clever. Do do? I love it. What do you do? I was so proud. Thank you for appreciating it. I am it. proud like, of you. you. Hurt, like, if you hurt your knee, you ice it. Like, if you have swelling, you ice it. And so this idea of hibernation or this medically induced hypothermia will, to decrease swelling and lower your metabolism is just an expansion on this idea. Mm -hmm. It's just doing it for your whole body. So as Hannah said, it lowers your metabolism, it'll decrease swelling, it essentially decreases the amount of energy your body needs to function. Amazing. Which is what we're looking for. Yeah. And so again, this is not a new concept. Hippocrates also utilized hypothermia for medical purposes. If that name sounds familiar to you, it was because he was a Greek physician in the age of Pericles. Apparently this is classical Greece, which is the 5th and 4th centuries. I was reading an article and they were like, he was a Greek physician in the age of Pericles. I was like, that means nothing to me. Thank you. <laughs> like, and then I was Googling and they're like, classical Greece. I was like, that still means nothing to me. <laughs> like, that would have meant nothing to me too, Anna. <laughs> so I had to Google it. So the age of Pericles or classical Greece is the 5th and 4th centuries. You're welcome. <laughs> I didn't know that either. His name sounds familiar to you. It's He's commonly considered the father of Western medicine. And actually, contrary to popular belief, he did not write the Hippocratic Oath. But it is named for him. 
So if you don't know what the Hippocratic Oath is, um, when you if you go to medical school and you become a doctor, they'll have you take something called the Hippocratic Oath. It essentially is saying, like, I will not purposely harm people, all the things that you would like your doctor to do. Uh, yeah. It's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful oath. It has an incredible amount of meaning. It's very powerful. Uh, and it's very commonly considered that it is derived from a document that was actually written by Hippocrates himself. But I, this is another rabbit hole I went down. <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say. Yeah, I was like, Anna, you went down some intense rabbit holes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I really got into this. And then I had to, like, climb my way back up. <laughs> so apparently Hippocrates did not write the Hippocratic Oath. I found a whole bunch of articles about this. The major one is called Hippocrates didn't write the Hippocratic Oath. So why is he the father of medicine? And I found this on conversation.com. We Sounds will... legitimate. <laughs> I know. Actually, I've found a whole bunch of articles about it, but this was just the most interesting one to me. <laughs> Go for it. Apparently, this whole idea of Hippocrates himself was considered to be like his whole personality and everything. Apparently, there are a lot of things saying he was really selfless and he was really great. Apparently, nobody actually knows. And a lot of people think that was all just made up. Oh, wow. So, yes. And so the Hippocratic Oath apparently goes all the way back to this set of documents where like the Hippocratic... I'm not going to say documents, but series of papers or something. Uh-huh. Anyway, they don't think he wrote it. If you're interested, if you, <laughs> I'm already too into this. If you want to research this yourself, check out this article that I linked or Google, did Hippocrates write the Hippocratic Oath? <laughs> Actually, this is an episode all about the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> it's nothing to do with hibernation. It's just about how Hippocrates did not write the Hippocratic Oath. We're sorry. We gaslit you, but you're already too deep into this to give up now. So... All right, moving on. We're actually going to get back to what we're supposed to talk about. We're going to skip a couple centuries to a more recognizable age of medicine, the 1940s. So in 1943, a researcher named T.B. Fay published a paper titled Observation on Generalized Refrigeration in Cases of Severe Cerebral Trauma. So that would be severe spine trauma. I could not find an actual copy of this paper to read myself. Everything I know about it comes from abstracts of other papers that reference it. So the article I talked about at the beginning from vice.com references it. Yeah. And then I found multiple other papers that reference this article and reference, excuse me, not an article, reference this paper and reference Faye's research, but they, and in the citations you can find the paper, but when you click on it, I cannot find the paper itself. So just as a little caveat, everything I know about this comes from other papers. I will link to the paper and we'll leave a little note in our sources. That sounds great. But in essentially, in his paper, apparently, Faye discusses how he cooled a series of patients that had severe brain injuries to temperatures as low as 28 degrees Celsius. So I had to look this up. It's 82 Fahrenheit. <laughs> I'm really bad. I wish I knew. I know zero Celsius is freezing and 100 is boiling and that's all I know. <laughs> but so this didn't seem that cold to me at first. I was like 82 Fahrenheit. Like that's like if it was 82 degrees outside, I'd be like, that's hot. But yeah. the, however, when you compare it to human body temperature of 98.6 degrees, this puts us around 16 degrees lower than body temperature. Also, just for reference, according to the Mayo Clinic, hypothermia occurs as your body temperature below falls below 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 Celsius, also, which is also something I didn't know. I thought hypothermia was way lower than 95, same, but it's not. Same, Anna, same. When I read about that earlier for this episode, I... When I was doing my research and I saw that induced hypothermia happens when you drop the body temperature 5 to 10 degrees lower. Yeah. I was like, really? That's it? Yeah. And actual hypothermia starts when your body temperature gets below 95. Your regular temperature is 98.6. That's 
that's less than four degrees lower than standard human body temperature. And that's, that's when crazy. You hit induce, that's when you hit hypothermia. That's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, backing up. 82 degrees doesn't seem like it's cold, but for the temperature of the human body, it is. So Faye would keep patients in this hypothermic state for periods of four to seven days. He hoped that the cold would decrease swelling and slow their metabolism, as we, Hen and I have mentioned many times before, giving their bodies time to recover. So he re- Faye reported outcomes that were, in quotes, better than expected. So I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I'm going <laughs> to go with good. <laughs> like... Imagine trying to publish that now. <laughs> yeah, you can't say outcomes are better than expected. I know, I really wish I could find and read the article. If anybody out there, for whatever reason, has a copy of this or know where I can find it, please send it my way. I'd please love to read it. send it to us. Yeah, yeah so, okay, we're going to say good. We're going to say things turned out okay. So around this time, this was the 1940s and the 1950s, more researching, more research utilizing medically induced hypothermia was conducted, but it had mixed results. Something to keep in mind here was this was the 40s and the 50s. The ICUs did not exist yet. Chemical cooling methods did not exist. Even like a chemical ice pack would be a chemical cooling method. We didn't have those. Patients were literally cooled using simply ice water. So they would use ice and cold water. An issue with this is it's really tricky to consistently maintain that. Because as your ice melts, you get water, you have to keep replacing that. Mm. So while some positive results were seen, the results were uncertain and they were heavily varied. So the uncertainty of these treatments, effectiveness, mixed with the side effects of hypothermia, resulted in the discontinuation of the treatment for many years. Something to keep in mind here, I keep talking about hypothermia. Hypothermia is not a good thing. You don't want that. Like, you don't want to go outside and get hypothermia. Right. It, It can cause many things, including frostbite. That can cause nerve damage. In some cases, it can do damage to your brain. Like, they are doing this in really controlled environments. However, in many cases, hypothermia, you can still see the negative effects of hypothermia, which is something we're going to dig into a little bit more. So they were doing these studies. They were seeing negative impacts of hypothermia more than they were seeing positive effects. So as a result, interest in medically induced hypothermia waned for many years. So then in 1999, this shocked me. I was like, 1999? Like, that's not that long ago. But in 1999, a 29-year-old woman named Anna Bagenholm was out skiing with her friends outside of Narvik, Norway. She was a medical student. Her and her friends decided to go skiing after work, something she did all the time. She was actually trying to navigate around a waterfall, and she ended up plunging into the water headfirst. Oh, my gosh. Which is crazy. So she ended up trapped under a layer of ice. So she, her friends ran down and got her, and they were able, actually able to hold on to her skis, which prevented her from just completely falling into the waterfall. And she was able to find an air pocket. So she was above the water, but under the ice. Oh, God. Yeah. So she could still breathe. But she was trapped under this layer of ice for 80 minutes. And I actually read about this in an article titled Frozen Woman, A Walking Miracle. Her heart stopped for three hours and her body temperature dropped to 56 Fahrenheit. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 56 is a cold temperature to walk inside. To just be outside in 56 degree weather. That's cold. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the lowest ever recorded in a human being. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Miraculously. And that's so recent. Yes, this is in 1999. I assumed that this was going to be a long time ago. That's 31 years ago? Yeah. This woman's still alive. She's 60. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. It took me a second. I was like, 29 plus 31. <laughs> <laughs> so, miraculously, as I just spoiled for you, Anna survived. Yay. It's a good name. She survived, and she suffered <laughs> no brain damage. Yeah, amazingly enough, she survived. She suffered no brain damage, 
But unfortunately, she did suffer from nerve damage due to the frostbite. Um, so she does not have normal use of her hands. But she has returned to skiing, which is just incredible. That's incredible. The fact that she had no brain damage. Yes, I know. It's insane to me. Like, the fact that she could be 56 degrees for three hours and still have full use of her brain. It's really amazing. And that's because, like, at that low temperature, like we've mentioned several times in this episode, is that there's this there are less requirements from your body to be pumping blood um, to your brain. And so you're basically in this, like, reduced metabolic state, and your brain's just calmed down. Yeah. It's actually able to slow her metabolism down so low that she was able to survive, which is amazing. Amazing. Yes. So this actually revived interest in hibernation within the medical community. However, the process is rudimentary still. Patients are still cold with ice packs. Sometimes it's cold intravenous saline, or there's an inhalant called RhinoChill. So they, it's like they have the patients inhale this in a controlled manner, and it will actually lower their body temperature. My understanding from what I was reading is that no method is considered any better than another. They're really only consistently able to maintain the state for 72 hours, which means they just have to keep re-upping. Mm. Yes, and all of them have side effects, some of which are potentially severe. As I mentioned earlier, hypothermia has severe side effects. Just because you're reducing it doesn't mean there's no side effects. But the major side effect that is problematic in terms of using it in space missions is shivering. So if you get really cold, your body starts to shiver because it's trying to keep you moving and warm you back up. So this brings us into today in the future. So while there are ways to inhibit shivering when you do induce hypothermia in patients, some of them don't always work and some of them have some pretty mal effects. The problem with shivering is that your body wastes energy when you're doing that, which is the exact opposite of what you're hoping this hibernation is going to try to achieve. Your body doesn't want to be in a hypothermic state, so it fights it. So that's why you start shivering. So as yeah. a result, research is trying to essentially bridge this gap. Something I think is important to mention is that hypothermia, this induced hypothermia, is different from hibernation. Hannah mentioned this too. Hibernation, you don't necessarily have to be cold. Right. But the other important thing is that research is trying to focus on how to put astronauts into a state of hibernation rather than hypothermia-induced sleep. So this has all the benefits of hypothermia without the side effects. Your body wants to be in a state of hibernation. Well, not necessarily our bodies, but the body is willing to stay in a state of hibernation where your body will fight as hard as it can to get out of hypothermia. Yes. Thanks for defining that, Anna, because the terminology is confusing here. If you go to medical websites, like these hospital websites, will still refer to the process as therapeutic hypothermia, induced hypothermia. And your brain's like, what? Why would you induce hypothermia? Doesn't that have side effects? Aren't we taught in middle school and high school that hypothermia is bad in biology? Um, but yeah, exactly. Like Anna mentioned, we want to put the human body in hibernation, which is all the benefits of hypothermia, not the side effects. Yes. But right now, we don't know how to do that, which brings us to the future. So Isa, right now, is actually hoping to find some articles about there are a lot of medical studies that are working to figure out how to put the human body into hibernation, how to get rid of the maleffects of hypothermia, things like that. But I was really hoping to find something that was more space-related and discussed kind of if there were any groups planning that had, if there were any space agencies or companies actively planning to use hibernation for space missions. And what I did find was that ESAS is actively studying human hibernation for space travel. 
So ESA, or the ESA, the European Space Agency, we've mentioned them before, announced on November 18th, 2019, that they were going to try to use human hibernation for future space travel. They did not announce the specific mission it would be used for, so as a result, I decided I would put together some uh, theoretical mission links for you. So as a reference, Mars is 136 million miles from Earth. It estimated that it could take 150 to 300 days for a spacecraft to reach Mars. This is one way, so Earth to Mars. 150 days is really sporty. You would have to be booking it. You'd have to be willing to burn a whole lot of fuel. Your trajectory has to line up perfectly. Like, Mars has to be close to the Earth. Yeah. A lot of things would have to go right there. So we're probably realistically looking at somewhere in between the two. It it depends on a variety of different variables. It depends on your spacecraft. It depends on how many people you're carrying. A whole bunch of things. However, 150 to 300 days for 136 million miles. All right, okay, so we're looking at less than a year, probably more than six months, pretty far. If we look at the next planet away from Earth, we all know that's Jupiter. We can say them all in order. Jupiter is 495 million miles away from Earth. That is more than three times as far as Mars. So if we just scale how long it would take us to get to Mars and apply that to Jupiter, that's 554 to 1,100 days. That's almost three years. Like, one way. That's crazy. Yeah. And then if we want to go even further, if we want to go to Saturn, we're still in our galaxy. We haven't left yet. If we want to go to Saturn, that is not... I have 95 million miles from Earth, but that is definitely not far. That is far. And also, like Anna said, these are sporty. These are sporty. Like, it could take three years to get to Mars, depending on the trajectory that we choose. Oh, Oh, completely. So then if we go to the next planet, Saturn is 954 million miles from Earth. That could be six years one way. Holy cow. Not, I mean, one way? Yeah. So any mission further than Mars is really going to require some form of hibernation. Mars itself could even be argued to use some form of hibernation. But if we want to get to any other planets, if we want to leave our galaxy, we're going to have to use some form of hibernation. Oh, yeah. So I wish I had more to talk about what's being done now, but there's not a whole lot out there. Because as I said, it really, renewed interest really only came around around 1999. And there are successful cases, like I mentioned, like NASA's looking into hibernation chambers. (coughs) um, And there have been plenty of success stories in hospitals but again a lot of research still has to be done on how to mitigate the side effects oh yeah i think we're gonna get there but as hannah said we still have a long way to go so we're kind of just gonna have to hold on and wait and see how it happens yeah so i'm excited i think this might be able to be something we see in our lifetime i think so too and yeah space hibernation is just such a cool it's like a buzzwordy topic that you hear but it's really awesome to like really dive into the research and understand that it's completely a possibility in our lifetimes. Oh, 100%. And then it's also neat. So I used to watch movies. I, I, I don't know why I'm saying I used to watch movies. I watch movies all the time. <laughs> I love movies. <laughs> I love movies. I love TV shows. I love books. But um, a lot of times in movies and stuff and TV, you'll see, you'll see all these cases of people sleeping in hypothermia. You'll be like, is that realistic? And so right. actually next... We're going to talk about some of our favorite cases of hibernation and induced hypothermia in movies and TV, and we're going to talk about it for you guys, and we're going to kind of break it down a little bit. I'm super excited for this section, Anna. I am too. I like spent way too long thinking about what I was going to do, but I can't wait. But I can't wait too. Want to take a little break first? Yeah, Anna, let's take a break. Let's do this. 
summer break, and I'm excited to talk about some movies. Yeah, me too. The sci-fi side of space hibernation is super exciting. It's really fun. Hannah, what do you got? You want to go first? Yeah, I'd love to. So just a heads up, what we're talking about may contain spoilers. So if you don't want any spoilers after the movies we mentioned, just don't listen to the section. Yeah, but we're not talking about anything particularly new. Yeah, so. like these movies have been around for a few years. And if you haven't watched yeah. them until now, I don't. I think you are probably going to enjoy the information that we're sharing. Yeah, agreed. Um, so I have two movies that I want to talk about. The first one is Passengers. So Passengers came out a few years ago. It has it stars Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. Um, and in the movie, they're known as Aurora and Jim. Aurora is a journalist and Jim is a mechanical engineer. Nice. Okay. Okay. Just setting the scene here. They are on board a sleeper ship, which is called Avalon. And it's transporting over or around 5,000 people to a planet called Homestead 2. And so my favorite part about looking up sci-fi information is all the details that go into it. I just love the words like Avalon, Homestead 2. And they do a good job. Yeah. The writers definitely have fun. Yeah. I think it'd be so fun to write a sci-fi movie together. <laughs> I think it would too. It's it's also hard because they can so easily turn bad. A hundred percent. And I'm going to have some criticisms in a bit. <laughs> uh, okay, keep going. So the trip is supposed to last, this journey to Homestead 2 is supposed to last 120 years. And it's set in the year 2343. So 300 years from now. 30 years into the journey, an asteroid impact impact. Um, 30 years into this journey, an asteroid impact causes one of the computers to malfunction, and that messes with Chris Pratt's, uh, Jim's pod, and he awakens. I can never watch a movie with Chris Pratt and not just think of it as Chris Pratt. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, I'm just like, what's his character name again? I just always- like Guardians of the Galaxy? I think he's Star-Lord, and I'm like, ah, Chris Pratt! Chris Pratt! Chris Pratt did this! Chris Pratt did that! Not Star-Lord yeah. did this! <laughs> no. No. Not at all. Um... Chris Pratt gets lonely in this period of time that he's awoke, that he's awake, and so he wakes up Jennifer Lawrence and convinces her that her pod malfunctioned. So this is a pretty messed up plot. I got so mad when I saw that <laughs> when I watched this movie because he like again more spoilers. He essentially watches videos of her yes. and then falls in love with her. Yes. Through these videos, which feels weirdly, it's supposed to be romantic, but to me, it would feel like if you fell in love with somebody you only know from Instagram. Yes. Like, you don't know this person, and then decides to wake her up. And then another interesting point is that once these people wake up, they can never go back to sleep. Yeah. Well, the thing is, they have limited pods, which also blew my mind. I'm like, there's no backup technology. Like, there's no backup pods for if... Yeah, I feel like you would have, you'd have some backups. Right, on a 120-year journey. So that kind of blew my mind, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, so then Jennifer Lawrence eventually falls in love with Chris Pratt after being mad at him for a while. So I'm like, hello, Stockholm Syndrome. What is this movie? Yeah. <laughs> he essentially decides for her to be like, I'm going to wake you up so that you are going to live the rest of your life alone with me in this ship. So messed up. Um, but anyways, besides the messed up plot, the imagery is super awesome. Like they did really it great is, it CGI. It is cool imagery. <laughs> yes, they did do a good job. <laughs> um... And let's get into the science of it a little bit. So the passengers on Avalon are under induced hibernation. And this is definitely not realistic because their hibernation pods 
are induced hibernation pods and nothing else. I do not remember any sort of indication of them being cryopods, which means that they would age. Like on this 120 year journey, they would age 120 years. They would, their bodies yeah. would atrophy 120 years. By the time they reached Homestead 2, most of these people would be dead. That's an that's another point. Your body still ages when you're hibernating. Exactly. You would have to be in a cryo environment to not age. Exactly. So yeah, so okay, they die, They will have died of old age before they got there. Right, so I was like, what the heck? That's, the movie imagery is awesome. The plot is messed up and the technology is messed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a little, there's a few, okay, yes. But so yeah, the movie was so-so. Um, so the next movie I want to talk about is Alien Covenant. Alien Covenant is a sci-fi horror film. This one came out in 2017. And I'm not usually a fan of horror movies, but this one I could deal with probably because it was sci-fi and not one of those weird supernatural ones or rampage murder ones. For some reason, I just like can't handle them. Like they give me nightmares. I don't like like I don't like the ones where it's just somebody who's murdering everybody and everybody's running away and is scared. I don't like those. Yeah, that's too gory for me. Like I can't stomach it. I'm constantly in a high stress mode. No, thank you. I agree. But so Alien Covenant is the second movie in the set of three. It's part of the original Alien movie series that has Sigourney Weaver in them. Yes. Those are all awesome movies. If you like sci-fi, I'd be shocked if you haven't seen them. Yeah. If you haven't seen them, you should watch them. Again, it sucks you in. Yeah. Yes. These are not for kids. Not for kids. If you're an adult, watch these movies. They're great. Yeah. They're always well done. So anyways, this movie is set in 2104. Yeah, that feels weird. How do you say 2104? Anyone. 2104? Anyways, this movie is set in 2104. And the colonization ship called Covenant is six years from arriving at planet Oregay 6. Uh, there are 2,000 passengers on board the ship, and they are in a stasis state. And on their way to Oregay 6, here's a spoiler, a shockwave damages the ship and wakes up the crew. And while this crew is fixing up the ship, a transmission encourages them to go to another planet that's closer and appears to be habitable. And then things start getting wild, like on that ship, on that planet, there's some aliens. It's just wild. Is there really? <laughs> if you couldn't figure that out by now, you need to watch more movies. <laughs> um, so let's get to the science. I went to the fandom wiki page for the alien anthology and read that. So first of all, I just think it's super cool that there are fandom wiki pages out there that are super dedicated to there are these so movies. many of them. Yeah. And not just for big fandoms, like anything you want. <laughs> yeah, anything. Um, and on the wiki page for the Alien Anthology, they have all the terms described, like more so than you would find descriptions in a dictionary, which I thought was awesome. Um, impressive. So one of the terms is the hypersleep chamber. So in the Alien Anthology, they are... The passengers are in hypersleep chambers, and a hypersleep chamber is a tube-like chamber. This is from the wiki page. I have um, in quotes, the hypersleep chamber is a tube-like chamber in which a person is cryogenically frozen in a process commonly known as hypersleep. So these stasis pods are referred to as hypersleep chambers, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of the word hypersleep, the term hypersleep. 
So I googled hypersleep and it's a specific science fiction term for stasis. I guess it just is a way to make the term stasis sound cooler. Um, but yeah, so they are in a cryopod, a bit more realistic than just induced hibernation pods. Um, gotcha. But yeah, that's all I have to share. I thought both of those movies were pretty cool in terms of yeah. presenting space hibernation and cryopods as a concept to the general public. I thought that was great. Yeah. How about you, Anna? What did you find? Okay, I had some fun with this. <laughs> so the first one I picked is, this is not necessarily hibernation, but it's more along the lines of, it's kind of hibernation, but it's more along the lines of cryo. Uh-huh. So the first one I picked is Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. So that would be the fifth Star Wars movie. Yes. Episode five. It's my actually my favorite Star Wars movie. Just throwing it out there. Nice. So there's this very famous scene where Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. And so, again, from the Star Wars fandom wiki, which is actually called Wikipedia. I love that. <laughs> I thought it was really cute. Yeah. It's super cute. According to this, carbonite was a liquid substance that was made from carbon gas. It could change into a solid through rapid freezing. So that's a quote exactly from their website. Okay, so carbonite is some kind of substance that turns into solid if you freeze it. Interesting. Okay. All right. So goods could be preserved through carbon freezing. In the movie, Han Solo is frozen to test the carbon freezing facility. Lots of spoilers. What they really wanted to do was freeze Luke Skywalker. They were testing it on Han Solo. I don't think these are spoilers. I think you should have seen these movies. (laughs) However, how realistic is this? I love Star Wars. Obviously, nothing in the Star Wars movies is realistic. I just picked this because it's the most famous scene I could think of that involves cryo or freezing. Very first off, carbonite does not exist. Uh, carbon itself does exist. This is, But carbon is a solid at room temperature. Uh, diamond is carbon. So I guess, yeah, you can freeze it, but put a diamond in the freezer and nothing happens. It just gets cold. <laughs> you can't, in case it's not in the movie, it's a liquid. It's very obviously like a liquid that they're dipping somebody in. And it's a... But how... Okay, so then I was like, carbon dioxide has a freezing point of negative 109.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So absolutely no human being is surviving being that cold. Yeah. You would suffer from beyond severe hypothermia. That is way too cold. Yeah, your body would just degrade under that cold Like, I'm not even sure what would happen. Yeah, I actually don't know. I I just... (laughs) You wouldn't survive that. You just just wouldn't. Especially not... Like, if you were... I'm going to talk about this a little bit in a second with the next movie. You can freeze and preserve human tissue, but it's a slow process. You don't just dunk somebody in there. (laughs) Yeah, and then it's just like, oh, this person's frozen. I can revive them. Just by sticking them in a microwave or something. Heck no. (laughs) Nothing about... Obviously, this isn't feasible. Nothing about the Star Wars movies is feasible. I just really like them, and I thought it would be fun. Yeah, that's an awesome scene, Anna. It's a great movie. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. So now, okay, conclusion, obviously not feasible. Yeah, not feasible. All right. We're going to move on to Captain America. I started thinking about this because I decided that I was going to watch all the Avengers movies in order. Uh-huh. I don't know why. I just decided that was what I was going to do. <laughs> not all the Marvel movies. That's like a commitment. I guess I had time. I guess I could do that. I'm not going to. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess in the quarantine like, you could probably accomplish yeah. that. I can't. That's why I decided to just watch all the Avengers movies. I think it's just so I have like a plan of what to watch because I'm just running out of stuff. Oh, yeah. Me too. I get that. So, Captain America, whose real name is Steve Rogers, was famously frozen in the ice for 70 years. I read somewhere a while ago, and I cannot find it again. 
so I don't know if this is true, but it's really interesting if it is. I read somewhere that originally Marvel utilized this idea that Captain America was frozen and came back as a plot device to bring the Captain American, excuse me, to bring the Captain America comic books back. So my understanding is that Captain America was a really old comic book character, essentially in uh, the 20s and 30s. And then in more modern times, they wanted to bring him back, but they weren't necessarily sure how. So they were like, oh, he got frozen in the ice and now he's back as the same as he was when we last saw him. Oh, as a way to motivate more comic books. um, As a way to bring him back into the comic books. Oh, that's so interesting. In modern times, yeah, and have a reason for it to be why there would be such a gap and why we saw. That's so interesting. I've never heard of, like, movies being used as a uh, point to bring back, uh, to motivate more book or literature or comic book plots. So that is fascinating. So they didn't do it in the movie. They did this in the comic books. They did this to bring the comic book character back. Oh. And then they copied it to the movie. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Never mind. So the other way around. Yeah. But uh, they did it from a comic book standpoint to have a reason to bring Cap- to write more Captain America comic books. Okay. Got it. So then they just copied this plot device into the movie. Because it's what happened in the comic books that they were redoing in the movie. Got it. Sorry I got that messed up, everyone. Please don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> not, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. <laughs> So, uh, again, I got too into this. However, apparently Marvel actually came up with an explanation for how Captain America survived. Okay. A quote I found from an article that we'll link in our sources is that physical examination of Captain Rogers revealed that while thickened, his blood's water was not frozen. Blood tests revealed that his blood contained excessive amounts of glucose as a result of his liver processing his glycogen stores. Excuse me. His glycogen stores which is like a sugar, mm-hmm. thus lowering the freezing temperature of bloodborne water and creating a cryoprotectant. Apparently, this process is similar to how wood frogs survive really? during hibernation. Yeah, it's, I, I, initially I was going to write down the entire explanation, and then I thought that was maybe too much. If you're curious, wood frogs survive during hibernation doing a similar thing to what they described. I guess they somehow have more glycogen, gly, blah, blah, blah glycogen stores in their livers i don't know why that word's so hard for me and then that somehow they're able to use that to circulate through their blood and preserve cells Mm -hmm. some really please don't quote me on that some really complicated process if you're curious about that google how wood frogs hibernate so what i'm pretty sure happened is that some writer was like trying to figure out how you could survive figured out that's how wood frogs survive yeah like oh that'd be interesting we can use that so which i kind of appreciate that they tried you know I, I did, too. I thought it was really interesting. And I was like, wow, okay, that's actually kind of feasible. It's This process has never been seen in humans. Yeah. This is an interesting side note. Yes. But I thought that was interesting. They tried. They tried. So, interestingly enough, cryogenic body, body preservation is real. Um, it can only preserve a body. It cannot suspend animation of a living person. So you cannot take a living person, put them through this cryogenic process, and then revive them. But if you want to, if you want to save human tissue, you can use it to do that. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. So, again, because this process, it's a really long, complicated process. It does not consist of simply putting a body in ice and freezing it or tissue in ice and freezing it. The blood is actually replaced with a cryoprotectant or a liquid that will not freeze and risk damaging the tissues. So, Captain America's blood turned into a cryoprotectant through this glucose. If you wanted to preserve 
a human body, you would actually have to remove the blood and replace it with the cryodetectant. It's also a long, slow process. Simply put, no person could survive being that cold. Your blood would freeze. Yeah. However, counter-argument, Steve Rogers isn't a regular human. Uh, so who knows? <laughs> I I guess if you did have a person and you injected them with a special super serum that Steve Rogers got to become Captain America, maybe they would survive being in the ice for that long. <laughs> who can say? Who can who can truly say in this world that is created in this movie? Yes. So who knows? All right. And then my last one is a very popular one. It's actually one of my favorite movies. It's called Interstellar. So good. I'm sure you've all seen it. I'm sure you've all heard about it. Yes. There's an entire fandom wiki dedicated to Interstellar. Who knew? I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know people. <laughs> so they call them, in the movie, they call them hypersleep pods. Just like are... in Alien Covenant. Yep. Yep. Common, common term they're using here. These are large coffin-like boxes, and they're filled with a small amount of some kind of liquid. It could be water. We never really find out. So when the pods are open, steam is emitted. So we don't necessarily know if that means the person was cold in the pod and then heated back up when the pods are open. And that's why you steam the seam. Yeah. And that's why you see the steam. Uh-huh. Or, so we don't know. Are they in cryosleep? Or are they just in hibernation? Or is the steam a fun effect? <laughs> yeah. Again, who knows? Who knows? Nothing is really known about how the pods keep the humans alive. So it could be possible. It could be possible that they're in cryosleep. However, the one thing that is not explained is how do you prevent that muscle atrophy? Yes. So unless like... I guess if you were cryogenically frozen, your muscles would stay the same. Yeah. So if they wanted to be more realistic, then they should choose cryosleep. Like the movie writers should choose cryosleep. But at the same time, I can't trust all movie writers, so I don't know if they just imagined, oh, we can just put them into hibernation mode and they'll be okay. There's also some problems there, because, like, as I mentioned, we don't know right now how you would put a person in cryosleep and then prevent them from any getting any nerve damage or any symptoms of hypothermia. Right. Like, you couldn't be in cryosleep for that long, that cold, right now, as our technology exists right now, and then wake up and just walk around, no problem. Yeah. So it is definitely a very... Uh... It's a concept in its infant stages right now. Yes. So uh, you really can't say it's not possible because who knows? It could be in the future. Yeah. Totally. So, again, undetermined. Undetermined. Otherwise, Interstellar is a phenomenal movie. Would highly recommend. I love that movie. It is a great movie. movie. <laughs> they, so many things they do are really accurate to science. Like, they talk about the effects of microgravity in space. Yes. Which I thought was awesome because technically it's not anti-gravity. It would be microgravity because you're always under some gravitational pull of some body. Uh-huh. But just on a lesser, lesser level as you get farther and farther away. So it's microgravity. I, I think they actually, like, for that movie, I'm pretty sure they talked to physicists. They did a lot of work. They did a lot they of really work. They really did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're curious about what else is accurate in Interstellar, you can just go to, you can just Google it. Yeah. Or just watch <laughs> the movie. You'll find a ton of stuff. <laughs> or watch the movie. Yeah. It's great. Huh. All right. That's all I had. Wonderful. Should we get into our sources? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You want to go first? Sure. So I referenced a few YouTube videos. One of them was What is Hibernation by Sheena Lee Faherty. And I'll have the YouTube link in my sources. Um, I also referenced an article in the Atlantic, Human Hibernation, a real possibility. Uh, so I will have that linked as well. 
there was also an article by uh, in Elsevier called Hibernation for Space Travel Impact on Radio Protection. I also referenced the Johns Hopkins Medicine website for therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, the NASA proposal that I referenced in the What is Hibernation section of this podcast by Bradford et al. called Torpor-Inducing Transfer Habitat for Human Stasis to Mars will also be linked in the sources. Um, the grad school paper that um, the research team I was a part of in grad school worked on, Advanced Concept for a Crewed Mission to the Martian Moons, is another reference that I'll have. And then the Wikipedia pages for the movies Passengers and Alien Covenant, um, as well as the Alien Anthology Fandom Wiki, will also be referenced in the sources. Yeah. Nice. Thanks. How about you, Anna? What are your sources? All right. We should all settle in because I got a lot. (laughs) (laughs) One of the major, one of the first ones I used, a I used it the whole way through really researching the history of hibernation and cryosleep. There's this really awesome article from vice.com called a brief history of cryosleep. Cool. And yeah, I used some websites. I used that the article about induced hypothermia to treat post ischemic and post traumatic injury. Some other websites on things like the Mayo clinic to figure out what ischemia was and when hypothermia started. I used the Encyclopedia Britannica to learn about the Ebers papyrus. I used Wikipedia to learn about classical Greece. Man, I forgot I did all this. <laughs> Some other websites about, uh, again, that article I mentioned where it's like Hippocrates didn't write the oath, so why is he the father of medicine? And that is from theconversation.com. The information I got about the TB Fay article came from this other paper titled oh man titled experience with prolonged induced hypothermia and severe head injury by donald w marion again mayo clinic i found that article from the cbs news called frozen woman a walking miracle it is stuff from earthsky.org about human hibernation and trips to mars another one and then a bunch of stuff for my sci-fi deep dive that we kind of did is I used inverse.com to learn about cryo carbonite cryogenic preservation, the star Wars fandom wiki, the interstellar fandom wiki, and then an article from express.co.uk about captain America and how he survived being frozen in ice. Nice. Awesome. I got. Yeah. Heck yeah. This was Uh, such a fun episode to do. I really like this one. This was a really good topic, Hannah. Yeah, I'm so glad we got to do it. It was just super fun to read about. And I love just being able to look up movies um, that used hibernation and then actually look at them from a more technical standpoint. Yeah, it was really fun. And then it made me... I haven't seen Interstellar in a long time. I was like, ah, oh, I should watch it again. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. See if I can find it. Yeah. My family is right now. We're watching all the Star Wars movies in the order that they were made. So. Oh, I think that's so awesome. Do you guys like sync um, over yeah, Zoom? We all, we all, we Facebook call. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, yeah. We just like Facebook call and then we start the movie at the same time. Oh, it's pretty fun. That's so fun. It is. All right. All right. Do you want to 
tell everybody where they can find us? I'd love to, Anna. Please visit www.butitisrocketscience.com to listen to our episodes. Um, And also please use the Contact Us page to let us know of any future episode ideas you want to listen to. If we got anything wrong and you want to correct us, we'll correct ourselves in the next episode. Um, Leave us any suggestions or comments. Please, please, please use the Contact Us page. You can find us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is but it is rocket science. You can please check out our Facebook page. You can look it up, but it is rocket science. And our Twitter is but it is RS. And this is all also there are links to all of this on our website. And if you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean a lot to us. That would really help us out. And Google Podcasts. We're now on Google Podcasts. Yes, you can find us on Google Podcasts too. But yeah, that's all we have for today. All right. Until next time, Space Cadets, T-minus three, two, one, liftoff.